Hey folks, just before we start the podcast, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, this is Rory's conversation from the 1st of June with the former Special Rapporteur for Housing, Lilani Farah, and now he's the, the driving force behind the global movement to stop investor fund takeover and the financialization of housing, Lilani Farah. Many of you have heard Lilani on the podcast before. Um, there is obviously a petition on the end of this podcast and the link is in the bio. We would ask you to sign it and support it and get behind it. Also, if you listen to this, why not consider joining us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise It means we can keep these podcasts independent, ad-free, and without editorial oversight. We don't want to be upsetting corporate sponsors. Uh, and you'll get lots more for that, including exclusive podcasts uh, like myself and Martin's conversation around Ireland's defamation laws, uh, John John Schwartz on life in America's culture of ultraviolence. Uh, you'll catch up on the latest with Built Different, Caroline's conversation with Lenny, Lenny Abramson, and... Uh, you get invites to our online live events there's a lot in there there's a lot more coming actually a lot more coming sure even this week we've john gibbons on the environmental protection agency report and later on today i'm talking to people in colombia and in lisbon to talk about what is happening politically is there a shift to the left or am i very much mistaken all of those will be available on patreon.com forward slash tortoise as soon as we can turn them around thanks for the support and do listen to the pod Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and I'm delighted to be joined back on the podcast by a guest who we've had on a number of times before, has been one of our most popular guests we have had on. It is Leilani Farah, who is, of course, as listeners probably will know, is the former United Nations Rapporteur on Adequate Housing. Um, and is now the director of a new movement in housing to get to make housing a human right across the world called The Shift. And Leilani, thank you so much for joining us back on Reboot Republic. I love Reboot Republic and I'm really happy to be here, Rory. Uh, yeah, no, it is so great to see you again. Unfortunately, not in real life. We are on Zoom. Um, but listen, you've doing, you've put in a massive amount of work and you've produced an incredible um, I think kind of almost direction forward for how we can challenge and the rise of financialization, the, you know, the housing crisis that's spreading its tentacles across the world. In Ireland, we know this more than ever, but true, you've put forward what are called directives, the shift directives. What, what are they, Leilani? Yeah. So you, you kind of nailed it. Um, this is a forward-looking document. It's a map for how we can undo the housing crisis that is global in nature, that's deeply affecting people in Ireland and elsewhere across Europe and elsewhere across the world. So we call the shift directives from financialized housing to human rights-based housing. So that's what the document is trying to push. It's to say, look, let's take seriously the fact that housing is a fundamental human right recognized in international law and signed on to by governments around the world. And if we recognize that and then 
actually vision a world where that is implemented by governments and investors, we would end up in a very different place than we're in right now. And we can undo the housing crisis if we take seriously housing as a human right. So that's it in a very big nutshell, broad, broad. Yeah. But of course, there's there's huge detail in the document in terms of what governments, as you say, what investment funds, what the private market can actually do and what should be done. First of all, maybe to start and explain a little bit, what is, in terms of, as you see it, the housing crisis and financialization? Yeah. So the housing crisis, um, I think, has to be defined in sort of um, two sides to the story. So on the one hand, we've got across the globe about 1.8 billion people living in grossly inadequate housing, unaffordable housing, and in homelessness. So 1.8 billion, that's a lot of people. We have tenants across the planet, and this is true in the global north and the global south, Mm. tenants barely able to pay their rent because things are have gotten so unaffordable. And I mean, the 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 statistics are the same in city after city after city. So we can look yeah. at uh, Santiago, Chile or Mexico City, Mexico, and then we can look at Dublin, Ireland, and we will see the same thing, escalating housing costs and stagnant wages. So that's sort of on the one side. But then on the other, we have this value of residential real estate and the global value of residential real estate is now over 230 trillion U.S. dollars. So that is a staggering amount. I mean, you and I, Rory, we don't know what the heck that means, right? I mean, that's a whole lot of money. That's a lot, a lot. It's a lot of money. They say... um, so some of the people who try to make money um, intelligible to folks like us, everyday folks, yeah, they say that 230 trillion is more than 20 times the value of all the gold that has ever been mined ever. Wow. It's three times the GDP of the of the world. So you take the GDP of every country. Put it together, multiply by three, multiply by three. And that's what real estate is valued at. Yeah. So to me, this suggests the crisis. Right. So so then you say, well, so so what? So, you know, what's the relationship? Yeah. Well, the relationship is the people who are benefiting from housing are the people in that that have access to that value. Right. And they are corporations private equity firms, insurance companies, pension funds, actors that you know very well in the state of Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're benefiting. They are using housing to extract wealth. They're gutting housing of its wealth, of its value from tenants, and they're using tenants very squarely. I mean, literally, they are benefiting from the rent that tenants pay. And on top of it, the valuation of the property and all of that stuff. So, I mean, these are very, very closely aligned phenomenon. It's not like, oh, well, you know, every society has homelessness and that's to be expected. 
Yeah. And then there's this financialization stuff. No, they actually sit together uh, integrally. Yeah. And something has changed, isn't it? Like you have been working on this since, you know, for over probably heading towards a decade, maybe longer now, you know, myself as well. Something changed fundamentally after the crash in 2008. And I've been looking at it in Ireland and it's interesting to see because a lot of people talk about, you know, the property boom that happened in 2005, six, seven, that led to that financial crash and the role of property in that and the excessive lending. It happened in the States. You know, I'm not sure to what extent in Canada, but definitely the States, Ireland, the UK, there was this huge splurge in lending for mortgages. And, and, and the kind of narrative goes that, oh, people, you know, the banks lend too much to homeowners, you know, that pushed up prices. Then we had the, you know, the economic crisis start, started kind of even 2006, people became unemployed, the subprime yeah. issue and all that. But actually what was also happening then when I looked at the figures for Ireland, really from 2004 and 2005 onwards, was banks started lending to the buy to let sector. And I know the Real Estate Investment Trust started in Canada as well to expand um, that they started to invest in property as an investment. And they were competing, just like we know investor funds are now competing with home buyers. They were competing back then. Um, and that led in part to that bubble. But then really we saw, and you obviously highlight this so well in the push, the documentary, that really it was after the crash, wasn't it? That, you know, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, when these big funds saw you know, this is the future. You know, we convert a generation of people who are hammered by austerity, low wages, younger people, millennials who are now in their mid, late 30s. You know, we convert them into renters, our renters, and we have money, income into perpetuity. And that's the process that's happened throughout the world. That's ac- absolutely right. And I, I love your telling of it because it's you're, you're just bang on. Um, Jonathan Gray, who was head of global real estate for a big private equity firm, the largest, one of the largest in the world, Blackstone, said that it takes or it took a crisis for them to become a dominant landlord in Western Europe and in the United States. Right. Yeah. And so what what they found after the crash in 08 was a whole lot of what they called distressed assets. Yeah. We would call them distressed families and households. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People who who had been sold predatory loans uh, and who really had invested their lives, <clears throat> excuse me, in home ownership and um, were left devastated for these actors, especially private equity, which is one of the more aggressive investors out there, they just saw opportunity and uh, opportunism. And so they went on a big shopping spree in Western Europe and in the United States, buying up, as you said, homes of everyday people and turning them into supposedly much needed rentals. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying we do need rental accommodation and, you know, yeah. I don't, we can get into, you know, how much do we need and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but these were people who were homeowners and they ended up renting the very homes they were living in, in some cases at exorbitant rates, more than the mortgages as mortgages that they were trying to pay off. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, and let's make sure we understand that banks are completely complicit in this as are governments. I mean, governments wa- didn't want to bail out the banks too much. 
they wanted to bail them out, but they didn't want to bail them out too much. And so they needed someone to buy all this bad debt. And the private equity firms were there. They swooped in and they were like, oh, yeah, we'll buy these mortgages at 35 cents on the dollar. And then they made a, a killing off of that, right? Um, they got they bought cheap debt and then they had, as you said, a whole class of people ready to pay rent and right. having to pay rent because people yeah. need homes. Exactly. And, and the interesting thing in Ireland, and I wonder how much this is happening elsewhere, is that what happened kind of post 2013, 14 into really up to now is that government, the Irish government, and I'd be interested to know how much this is replicated internationally, that in the context of that financial crash and governments, you know, implementing austerity, number one, they stopped building social housing, which was then, you know, in large part led to our homelessness. Um, And I know that is happening across Europe and we've seen it in the States. Governments, the small amount of social housing that they were building, they restricted, cut that further through the austerity budgets. But the other thing is that rather than trying to develop a sort of affordable housing market that would provide, you know, small and medium builders providing affordable housing or governments, local authorities, municipalities building affordable housing, they essentially turned to these funds and said, these funds will now provide the main form of new housing supply in our country. We give them tax breaks because really our local kind of construction industry developers are broken as a government. We don't want to do it. The funds came in and said, well, we'll build it for you. So this was after vultures. This was like the real estate fund. So now we have a situation where, you know, in terms of like the it's over half of all planning permissions, new planning permissions in the country are now basically investor fund departments. So the, the new supply has been dominated by these rentals. So people have no alternative but to rent these new properties. How much have they taken over that kind of new supply um elsewhere have you seen that yes definitely seeing that in north america for sure um in canada where i live for example um governments will say when i start the government will say when i start agitating it you know these real estate investment trusts and for the listeners if you don't know what a reit is it's really just a financial mechanism to own property and and, and numerous properties all at once and when i push back and say you know you go, to government you've got to control these reits what they yeah. say to me and is well, REITs are really integral to our housing supply. They're yeah. building the new supply. Yeah. And so, um, and of course I say, well, you know, that's nice, but you still need to regulate them because uh, they're undermining the human right to housing. And that's yeah. your job as government. Um, but they're definitely in the game on the supply side these days. And, you know, they're, they negotiate, like they'll say, oh, we are going to build affordable housing. Yes, government will do that for you. And then they define affordability in unaffordable ways, you know, 80% <laughs> yeah. of market value, yes. or they'll extract from the government um, preferential tax treatment, not just in terms of income tax, but property taxes, for example. I've heard they'll say, oh, yeah, we will build more affordable, but we'll add a few stories and we want our property taxes reduced. Well, what happens when we reduce taxes? There's yeah. less money in the coffers of government to do what governments need to do to create happy, healthy societies. Yeah. That's what taxes go toward. So, yeah. you know, it's pretty, it's, 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 it's a double whammy in a, in a way, because you've got on the one hand, um, they're actually not creating the affordable supply. On the other hand, they have governments beholden to them 
and governments undermining their own capacity to do what governments are supposed to do. So maybe that was a triple whammy. Who knows? But it's just bad <laughs> news, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we are like at the, the cutting edge of it here. Really, it is unbelievable to see what they're doing here in Ireland now. Like they and what government did and, you know, because they have these tax breaks here, like they created a specific tax incentive, as you know, like you wrote in position in your position as um rapporteur on adequate housing in 2019 you wrote an incredible uh, powerful letter to the irish government which people can check it out it's really worth reading um and it critiqued that whole you know tax incentive process encouraging you know financialization and you raise that whole question how do we have like we have the likes of kennedy wilson in here we've graystar we have all the big global vultures lone star all making like billions and paying hardly any tax whatsoever um, the, the, to come back on to, because I want to talk about the, the positive drive forward, what you're yeah. doing, um, maybe you could take us through some of what you think, I suppose, are the most important proposals that you're making um, that should be included in terms of these directives. Sure. So um, just to say, Ireland really is the, you know, test case for all of this uh, in terms terms of, I mean, you have one of the most financialized housing markets yeah. in the world, as far as I can tell. I'm always, I'm always using the example that you told me about um, in, I think it's Maynute, where single family homes were built, new builds, yes. and only a handful were purchased by actual households, and the rest were purchased by some big institutional <laughs> private equity investor, and then and then let out as rentals at exorbitant rates. I mean, yeah. that is such a powerful example. Um, so, you know, and, I feel, and actually, I, interestingly, yeah. since I told you that story, yeah. because of the public outcry, the investor fund actually pulled back and the developer decided not to sell. Amazing. To, which was very interesting. And the government, that's good for me to know, actually, yeah. because it shows that if we make enough noise, if we say, no, this isn't cool. This isn't the way forward. We can stop them in their tracks. We, so uh, absolutely. And and there's a very interesting angle is the government, as a result of that public outcry over what the investor fund and the developer uh did, introduced measures which restricted um new um restricted new developments of housing from being bulk bought by investor funds, but not apartments from investor mm. funds. Which was right. a really, you know, manipulative yes. way. So essentially, the apartment sort of sector is now completely free reign to the investor funds. But wow. listen, you tell us the directives. Yes. yes, that's also good for me to know. Thanks, Rory, for that piece of information <laughs> as I head off to the EU to uh, launch these directives. Yeah. Um, so the shift directives, I mean, there's 10 of them, so it's pretty yeah. hard to summarize. There's lots of recommendations. Yeah. It is very forward-looking document, but just so readers, I mean, readers, well, maybe maybe Hopefully the listeners will, will read. become readers. Exactly. Right. Um, shouldn't, you know, there's, as I said, there's 10 and it covers a whole range of financialized activity. So the really straightforward stuff that we're talking about Right now, real estate investment trusts, pension funds, private equity, and their activities, but also things like short-term rental platforms, Airbnb yep. and yep. Verbo and et cetera, and, and what needs to happen on that front. We take a look at some of the more sort of emerging, what are called asset classes, but 
emerging places and spaces where institutional investors are putting their money, student housing, for example, mm, and long-term yeah. care homes. Yeah. Um, so it it covers a, a, a broad range of activity within the sort of financialized world. We start off, and I love where we start off because it's this is home territory for me. Um, you know, I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm not a finance person. I just find myself in this world. I think you're a bit similar to me, yeah. or we find ourselves here. Um, so we start off with encouraging governments to do what they've already committed to do, which is to uphold housing as a human right and to legislate it. Mm. And, you know, putting that, and, and I know this is a, a, a live issue in Ireland, and I really hope that you see some kind of movement on that front, whether it's constitutional reform or just a legislated right to housing. It's super important that governments lay that foundation because once that's laid, it enables them to use human rights as they roll out housing policy or any policy that affects housing. And so yeah. I really think that foundation is is essential. And I said that as rapporteur and I continue to say that. So yeah. that's where we begin. Yeah. And for we us have- just to say, right. like it is in terms of, you know, for me and I know many others in, in the housing sector in Ireland and NGOs, for us, it is vital. It's constitutional because the constitution, yeah. you know, sets out what we want as a society, what governments are obliged to do. Um, and I think fundamentally as well, I think the process of a referendum would be a societal kind of expression of and decision and also political mandate to government saying we want housing to be treated as a human right. So that's where I think the power um, and creating, as you put so well in terms of the directives, what does it what does delivering a human right to housing mean in terms of policy legislation? And I just for us in Ireland, anyway, the Constitution is our document from which everything else flows. And I think for us anyway, it's important that it's constitutional. Continue. That's right. No, that's right. And and look at what's happening in Chile right now. You know, the Pinochet era constitution is being um, reformed and renegotiated. And and people are demanding that social and economic rights be included in the constitution, in particular, the right to adequate housing. And they have a really lovely articulation of that. And it it is super important in that context as well. And there are real parallels with Ireland because, believe it or not, Chile has one one of the most um, neoliberal housing yeah. markets in the world. I mean, they they kind of set the stage for the rest of Latin America, unfortunately. Yeah, course, and yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. they are demanding that constitutional reform. So what's, and what's the nice articulation that you... Oh, <laughs> don't ask me that. <laughs> I put you on it, the it's spot. It's quite a long... Like, it doesn't just say everyone should have the right to adequate housing. Yeah. It's quite a long thing. They talk. I think they talk about a dignified life and it's it's... It's it's broader and has more elements. You know, their constitutional reform is running some 400 pages. So okay. they get the kind of details, whereas, yeah. you know, in, ours is. Yeah, in, yeah. It's- yeah. And Commonwealth countries are in Anglo countries. We have just high level, right? One little former former Commonwealth. Former Commonwealth. <laughs> that's right. I said Anglo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so- yeah. Anyway, so listen, continue. Yeah, great. Yeah. The directives and, and the so in terms of getting governments is the first one in terms of them meeting their obligations around. That's right. What is a, their human rights obligations? as set That's out right. And, and really asking them to step up because, yeah, 
though governments have stepped up, what they've stepped up to do is to support, as you so well articulated, they're, they've stepped up to support finance. We're yeah. saying, no, you got to step up and support the human right to housing. And that that extends in particular to the most vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. right, or marginalized populations. Yeah. Um, so that's super important. And that lays the foundation. We then go directly to the big institutional investors and take a look at their activities and um, make several pretty strong recommendations. Um, Again, focused on states, actually focused on government. When I say states, I mean governments and all levels of government. So depending on how your how your um, uh, political arrangements are, some some places have very strong local government. Some Mm. places have very strong central government. But saying that states must ensure that investors in residential real estate comply with human rights. In other words, not just that governments need to legislate. And, and constitutionalize the right to housing, but they also actually have to extend those human rights obligations to investors and ensure investors are not undermining the human right to housing by doing things like requiring um, human rights impact assessments and due diligence on the part of investors. Like, have you ever seen that? In <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. No. Exactly. And wouldn't, I mean, I know that might seem mild to some people, but I think it's a game changer because it invites the conversation. Actually, it provokes the conversation. It mm. means one, that investors and developers would have to understand the human right to housing in order to do an impact assessment, in order to do due diligence, right? Yeah. Um, so it it actually requires a whole level of education and familiarity and fluency with the human right to housing. So we sort of we go down that path. Yeah. Um, we we um, ask states to define affordability when they're interacting with anyone in the area of housing. Um, at it consistent with human rights. And this is something that few people know. Um, but under international human rights law, there is a definition of affordability. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with what a market can command. So it, what is it? There's no mention of markets. Yeah. It, it's commensurate with household income. Yeah. Housing is affordable if you don't have to deny yourself or your family other human rights in order to pay the rent. In other words, if you're going without a meal a day because you need to pay your rent, or if you're cutting back on the warmth of your unit because you can't pay the high cost of um, heating and pay your rent, then you know your rent is too expensive and that's not affordable under international law. What international law doesn't say, and this might be um, disappointing to some, it doesn't say that housing is affordable if it if your your costs are are no more than thirty percent of your income. Yeah, they yeah. they don't actually give a a, a percentage, mm-hmm. but we know through um, social science research uh, that thirty percent is a nice marker to use, and mm-hmm. that if you're paying much more than that. You're having, especially if you're at the lower end of the the economic spectrum, you're having a hard time making ends meet. And in, so, in fact, some so, would argue, and I would argue that twenty five percent is probably given in particular countries like Ireland, right? You know, in Canada, the U.S., where you've you don't have other public services, so you're spending exactly. higher costs on things like healthcare, childcare, 
it's different in countries like Austria, Denmark, where they have other public services. Whereas in countries, again, the Anglo-Saxon ones who follow the neoliberal model, that are high cost societies that spending where you're spending over, you know, I think 25% on, on your, you know, take home pay on, on housing, you're, you're in trouble trying to survive. And particularly now with the cost of living crisis and inflation. Yeah, I think that's a super good point, actually. And I'm going to start using that if you don't mind, Rory, I will oh, attribute it to you. Um, I know I think that's really important. And the way as you said, all these services have been completely gutted in a place like Canada, for example, in the US, they don't even have, they really don't have social housing in the US anymore. I mean, yeah. it's it's incredible. They have manufactured homes like mobile homes that that's like housing of last resort there. I mean, it's, which is privatized and being taken over by private equity. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, I'll just say, I'll just add the other thing that we say um, that we, you and I have raised in our chat so far as a recommendation is a review of tax policies and re- the removal of special treatment for investors through, through taxation. Very I mean, that's, good. that yeah. would create a real chill. I'm sure of it because yeah. we know, for example, in Spain, immediately after the global financial crisis, like in 08 to 09, they had the capacity legislatively for real estate investment trusts to exist. Mm. They weren't used. That instrument was just simply not used because there were no tax advantages when Spain introduced REITs. Yeah. Then in 2013, I think it was, they introduced preferential tax treatment and REITs are used consistently and persistently ever since. So that suggests if you take away the tax benefit of that structure, then we might see a real chill in the sector. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't want listeners to think we let in institutional investors completely off the hook. It's not just that we're saying states, you have to do this and make sure investors are tamed. We also say, and hey, investors, there's a thing called business and human rights. There's yeah. a thing called responsible investment. You know, so social impact investing that actually abides by international human rights standards and norms. And so we push that in that section to make sure that investors start understanding that they have real human rights obligations, not this ESG mamby-pamby stuff. I don't know if your your listeners will know, you know, when there's this whole wave of, of corporations adopting what they call environment social and governance criteria in their business models. But those are like their ethical investment strategies. Yeah. But it's being corporate social responsibility. Exactly. I mean, it's it's corporate social responsibility by another name. And again, it's being used to greenwash, but also to social wash as well. Yeah. Um, so you'll see if you go to some of the big investment firms, you'll see that they talk about. I know. How see, I, I actually was on an investment fund website last night doing research for my book. And uh, oh, yeah. I came across specifically one of the big funds and they had that ethical. And it was actually one of the yeah one of the investment funds. Um, and it had like we do ethical investment alongside, you know, while you're investing massively in REITs, which are doing nothing ethical whatsoever. Um, just in terms of, I was interested, the, the short stay platforms, I think is very interesting as well, because I was reading recently, I don't know if you read the C- interviews with the CEO of Airbnb and his vision for the future of Airbnb, which is utterly terrifying. 
that what they see, he says, you know, we, we actually won't need landlords in the future. We don't, tenants don't need contracts or lease contracts. They'll just do short stays, you know, a month here, a month there, you know, maybe they'll be homeless for a month and then maybe they'll be able to afford rent for two weeks. And like, it is really horrific, I think, yeah. in terms of their vision for housing. I did read that and I was equally horrified. And we do have some recommendations that go to that. Yeah, because um, that's really important for Ireland because essentially Ireland, because we're a small country and quite a high tourist country, essentially anywhere in this country is a potential Airbnb. Yeah. And it is really problematic right now. We are seeing landlords converting all over the place into out of rental into Airbnb and complaining that because of increased government regulation, they're moving to this short, these short stay platforms and companies taking over entire blocks of apartments, renting them out on these short stays um, and people literally being evicted into hidden homelessness um, because of these short stays that they are as bad as the investors in some ways and, and also very hidden. It's very hard to get a picture of where they are and um, particularly the ones that aren't advertised publicly. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of affordable housing stock that is lost to, to short-term rentals, and this is before this vision, <laughs> this new yeah. vision of Airbnb is, is astronomical in the thousands in most cities. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. And if you look at some maps, it's amazing. Like if you look at a map of London, if you look at yeah. a map of Athens, if you look at New Orleans, the other day I was looking at the red dots, you know, where they, they yeah. plot all the, and it is, it is absolutely criminal. And in most places, these are not regulated and not, um, certainly not the original intention of Airbnb, which was you make a little extra income by renting out a room in your home. I mean, that's where it came from, right? Um, so I'm quite worried about this vision also, because I've been in the course of doing these directives, I have been in conversation with a whole bunch of journalists, researchers and advocates in Mexico. Yeah. And you can imagine that Mexico is a very desirable place to land to work for a month, right? If you can yeah. work online and you live in North America and you live in Chicago where it's super cold or, you know, up in Canada where it's super yeah. cold, you can imagine how attractive it would be to go to Mexico. And yeah. the people that I was in discussion with, um, well, Push the Film was touring throughout Mexico and it was a huge hit because people are really fearful. I mean, they're seeing these, you know, big towers going up that are intended for these short-term stays and for people to just go there, work for a month, get oh. away from the winter, et cetera. It's just, yeah. it's, it's really catastrophic. I mean, the directives take this, you know, head on um, and basically res completely restrict, say that, that short-term rentals should be completely restricted to principal residences only. So yeah. yes, I can use my home as an Airbnb to a maximum number of days per year, um, but I can't own a second property and use that second property as an Airbnb or a third property or et cetera, et cetera, yeah. or yeah. whole buildings that are just Airbnb. So we just decided um, as a group that it was the effects are too negative uh, in terms of affordable housing stock, and it has to be controlled. Um, we suggested that in over touristed areas um, that that, you know, short term rentals should be strictly, strictly limited. Um, 
that sort of thing, trying to curb because it does come with touristification as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, th- this is happening in some jurisdictions already. So we sort of we're riding on the coattails of existing um, jurisdictions where, where they've seen this as a problem. Amsterdam, for example, uh, tried to restrict uh, completely ban Airbnb from over touristed areas, uh, but got pushed back in the courts. Airbnb is one of the most litigious companies. So that's the, the problem when municipalities try to move forward and do something progressive to restrict Airbnb, they find themselves uh, in courts of law. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's it's uh, the power of these companies. And I think people really need to understand that their vision for, you know, what, you know, what their housing systems, like it is really dystopian, you know, Airbnb, the other platforms, the investor funds, you know, the people who make big money. And of course, at the heart of it is, is, is an issue around the whole pension question. You know, let so many of our pensions and pension funds investment is tied up in this real estate investment. And I think it's just so um, it's so warped. Like we have German pension funds coming in, buying up, you know, blocks of apartments. And, yeah. and these are public sector pension funds. We know that we're likely to have our own. I know we do have our own pension funds in this country investing in the only Irish residential REIT, IRES REIT. So you've got like this bizarre situation. And the government just introduced this new measure where um, they're proposing to auto enroll everybody in a pension because they accept that when people retire because of the increased renting, that people will need some sort of income to cover their rent. So you could have this bizarre situation whereby your pension is going to a REIT and investing in them, which then is locking you out of housing. But you need to have a an income reduction and pay a pension so that you can pay your pension to, your, to the REIT when you retire in your rent. Like it's just really. And I think this is part of the thing. We need to challenge the idea. I, I think we need um, I don't know whether, whether this is in the directives or not, the ethical divestment campaign like you had around fossil fuels. Um, it was actually Niall Carson who was uh, I was chatting to who suggested this to me as an idea. We were chatting over and back that, you know, we should have the ethical divestment of pension funds out of REITs. Yeah. Yeah. We do cover that. Not not put quite like that, though. Now, you know, this is going to be a, the directors will be a living document. So I I can doctor this <laughs> and, um, and and put that more direct language. But we definitely talk about um, not so much. We don't we didn't want to just talk about ethical investing or divestment. Yeah. Um, what we wanted to talk about was human rights compliant investing. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what we suggest. But I think there's huge scope with pension funds to expose yeah. what the, the, to expose the hypocrisy that you just exposed. Right. And yeah. that's what happens at the end of Push the Film. I don't know if you'll remember because you probably saw it ages ago, but we talked to some tenants in Toronto, yeah. one of whom was on a pension and their pension fund was investing in the housing that they could no longer afford. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous. It's a yeah. zero sum game, right? Yeah. And except that's what for, we have to expect. Except for the wealth funds and the wealth that's fund right. managers and, you know, yes. those who, who do own multiple properties and, you know, that's, that, right. that's, that's part of it. And I think that's the big the big challenge I think that's needed and why the human rights frame is so important is that we do need to challenge the idea that people can just make unlimited money from property and real estate. Exactly. They should Absolutely. be allowed. It, it, that's it, right. You know, that we have to restrict it, that people need to understand people need a home. That should be the primary function of real yeah. estate and housing systems. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's the thing. 
it's I always say to when I'm when I have the uh, fortune of talking with folks who are inside the industry, whether they're investors or whether they're housing developers, that you know they have to understand that it's not a business like any other business. Yeah, it is an area that is a human right, and yeah. therefore you need to exercise different business practices. Period, yeah. and you know that's that. I mean, that's we're trying. You and me, Rory, we're trying to undo an, a, a very um, entrenched system and way of thinking mm, that yeah. um, it's not easy to undo. But I mean, that's part of the role of these directives, right? Was just exactly. to, to open the door to a different conversation. Yeah. But one but, of the things that um, that that amazes me is the lack of accountability. Period. Like any of the actors involved, whether it's states or whether it's investors, pension, whichever investors, pension funds, et cetera, there's no accountability mechanisms for this or very few. And I really tried to push that in, it, I think it's directive nine in, in the, the shift directives, was like enhancing and beefing up accountability mechanisms and independent accountability mechanisms. We talked about ESG. Well, what good is this? ESG criteria, if it's a self-governing, self-monitoring, the industry is going to suddenly regulate itself in a way that <laughs> that is human rights compliant, right? Yeah. It's not going to happen. No, no, so we really no. need some kind of independent mechanisms. National human rights institutions are well-placed or could be well-placed if they uh, abide by the Paris principles. If they're truly independent, they could be well-placed to, to form or perform some kind of monitoring um, and accountability in this area, especially where you don't have the right to housing, let's say, in legislation or constitution, which would serve as an accountability mechanism. So I'm trying to push that as well, because that at the end of the game, we, we have to hold these investors' feet to the fire and we have to hold states' feet to the fire. Yeah. And ultimately, isn't it, though, come back to that, you know, when you look at the countries that have the most successful housing systems um, and obviously, the, you know, they're all under pressure and, you know, have been part financialized, or, you know, to different extents. But the ones a lot more successful than Ireland or Canada anyway, the likes of, you know, Austria, Vienna, um, you know, Denmark and uh, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, you know, social housing, the provision, the building, the direct building of social and affordable housing by local governments, by governments, by not-for-profit bodies. Like, it is so much more. It is, you know, they provide such a higher proportion of all housing. It's available to people on lots of incomes. It's beautifully designed. That ultimately, that's the solution to this. Like, is, is you know, alongside these, you know, regulations we need and human rights and why, you know, all these we need. Because ultimately, the funds can only provide housing when there's a market for them. And governments walked off the pitch 20 years ago and basically handed housing over to them that we need to get government local councils back on and building affordable and social housing for people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a huge part of the solution. I don't think it's the only solution. No, no, it's not the, the um, only. But, but certainly, I mean, the, the, what worries me, Rory, um, and why I probably don't put um too many of my eggs in that basket is that countries like yours and mine, we are so behind on the build of social housing and so out of it that what needs the ramping up 
is huge that needs mm. to happen, right? I mean, yeah. in Canada, the government divested from social housing, stopped engaging in social housing in the mid 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a huge time lag that needs to be made up. And so I do push government on that front, but also to say, okay, and insofar as we've got this market that's not working for people who are low income and poor, we got to figure out how to make it work. Uh, now, and middle income now as well is the that's point. Exactly. That middle income. The- absolutely. No, that's absolutely right. And the thing is, what I try to suggest is that some of this market housing needs to become social housing. Mm, yeah. Now, you know, because we're never going to build, building is expensive, especially right now with inflation, et cetera. We're never going to be able to build enough, but couldn't we harness existing units that are Airbnb units that are financialized units? Couldn't we harness existing units and convert them into social housing? And you know, as well as I do, that that's what the Berliners were on about with the referendum. And I I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of, they call it, I think, socialization of housing. And I, um, I think there's, there's something to be said for that. And that's not purchasing existing units at market rent. I mean, market uh, value. That's forcing these big actors to cough up some of their their yield and make it social housing. And and that would require a very strong state and legislation, right? Um, So I, I do think there's something that needs to be explored there for sure. That's in the directives as well. <laughs> great, great. And, and and no, it is. It's, it's so important to have that because for me, I think, you know, even you say it's such a long time that I think unless we start soon, the longer yes. we leave it, the worse it's going to get. Totally. You know, and, and uh, I, and it has to be huge, right? Yeah, it has it to be, be these little marginal programs. I mean, I see government celebrating 50 affordable units over here, yeah, 75 yeah. over there. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And how many people do you have living in homelessness? Yeah. Like thousands and thousands. Little piddly project over here and there is not going to cut it. No, no. I mean, you look at what Singapore has been doing for 50 years now, right? They build en masse housing that is intended for their population. It's scaled based on income. I mean, right? It it can be done. It can be done, you know, and and it's um, and I think that that's the point that this isn't some unsolvable you know situation that this is something that countries are doing you know as i said there are countries that do this very well it's not something we have to try and come up with some magic solution to it is very clear and it is about our housing systems you know being shaped around and driven by the principles and values of a human right to housing affordable secure tenure decent standard that is set out you know that you you know articulated so incredibly in in your um tenure so listen in terms of what's happening now with the directives you're presenting it to the eu that's right European going Commission. to the european parliament later this afternoon parliament sorry yeah, I'm I'm leaving Canada this afternoon, heading over to Brussels. Um, there will be a screening of Push the Film for parliamentarians who may not know about the phenomenon of financialization or how it works. And then uh, along with a colleague and friend, Professor Manuel Albers, whom you may know. Yes, we've um, had on the podcast before. There we go. So he and I will introduce the directives. Yeah. And then uh, there will be a panel discussion with a few European experts, including um, 
Kim van Sparentak, who's a Green member of European Parliament uh, from the Netherlands. And um, she's hosting a panel discussion. She has been a, a, a huge advocate of the human right to housing and uh, has commissioned a European report uh, to, to talk about and discuss what's happening at European level. So should be a great event. Yeah. It'll be followed by cocktails. That's always good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> great. And you'll be absolutely exhausted from your flight. Yes. Um, but listen, well done. It's brilliant to, to see it. And people can check it out. Um, it's the shift.org. Is that right? That's right. And uh, forward slash directives. Yeah. Um, it won't go live until June 2nd, but pres- presumably this is being aired after June 2nd. So, yep. Um, People can check yeah. that out at the directives and hopefully we'll have you back to Ireland and it would be great to launch them here. I would love to do that, uh, Rory. And your work has been so important on the issue of financialization. I've learned a ton through you and your writing. You're, you are a prolific writer. Uh, I wish I could be so, so, I don't know how you do it. You're amazing. In any event, it would be really cool to do something together for sure. In person, face to face. Yes, absolutely. And I know there's a lot of people in Ireland would love to hear you, and particularly as we try to progress the right to housing, the constitution referendum, but also those practical measures. Um, because we're actually at a very interesting point as well here, Dublin City Council. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, um, I've been following this, they have in their development plan put in a measure whereby build to rent developments would have to have 40% of housing for sale uh, to home buyers. Uh-huh. So we're so actually putting a restriction. But our National Planning Authority has said that that is in breach of uh, national guidelines. So there's a bit of a face off at the moment. But I think um, it was very significant that it's in the the development plan. And I think that uh, that is likely we're likely to see more of that. Um, And yeah, we're we're, I think that um, that our housing crisis here, unfortunately, um, is just continuing to worsen. And we're seeing emigration again, young people emigrating, not so young people emigrating. Um, But at the same time, I think what's interesting about the directives for me and what's happening is that there's a value shift happening as well. And that, you know, people who have been excluded, so many people excluded by the crisis, younger people are understanding and changing. They don't see housing as property. They see it as home, you know, and they see that that's what housing, that's the purpose housing should serve. And I think that that's the real, the the value shift we need to harness. So I'm really looking forward to, um, yeah, meeting you again, coming over, launching this, getting it going. And I'm looking forward to seeing the reaction to the launch. um, And hopefully it will, uh, it'll continue on anyway, keeps the pressure on. Exactly. Well, I'm, I do as much as I feel like um, retiring now that I've written this, <laughs> I do recognize it is a beginning of something, um, certainly for the shift. And uh, I'd be really happy to join you in Ireland and let's just keep moving this stuff forward. Great. We're going to win. We're going to win. We are. Absolutely. It's only a matter of time. It's not if, but when. That's right. Um, and the yeah, listen, thank you so much for all the amazing work you do. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. And thanks for this discussion. It was really great. Great. Well, listen, Leilani, thank you so much for coming on Reboot Republic. Pleasure, as always. And that was Leilani Farah, who is the director um, of The Shift Housing Movement, former UN Rapporteur. Um, you can check out the directives on um, theshift.org. And um, yeah, listen, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Share this around. Really appreciate it if you share it around on social media. Let people know you're listening um, and uh, put up comments on social media, Instagram, Twitter, 
um, share the link to the pod. It's great. It get, lets people know that uh, this is out there. And really, there was so much there in what Leilani said um, that, you know, we need to understand. We need to listen to. We need other people to hear. This is about a conversation as well. And um, this isn't just about banging people over the head. This is about, a, you know, with, with what way we think it should be. This is about deepening understanding of housing as a human right and its fundamental role. And all of us understanding that, everybody involved. Um, so listen, please do share it around. And as always, if you can become a patron, please go over to um, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Sign up, whatever you can. Keep this podcast on the road. Um, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all soon. 